Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello and welcome to episode 190. Today we're going to be talking about AI and weapons. Okay, stop thinking Skynet. I know that's right where most people's minds want to go. Thank you, James Cameron. But this is a very real and immediate issue. And it can be confusing to look at the arguments about autonomous weapons and try and figure out where to stand. Here to help us pick through those arguments, calling from Munich, is my guest Frank Sauer, head of research at the Metis Institute for Strategy and Foresight and a senior research fellow at the Bundeswehr University in Munich. He has a PhD from Goethe University in Frankfurt and is an expert in the field of international politics with a focus on security. His research focuses on the military application of artificial intelligence and robotics. He's a member of the International Committee for Robot Arms Control, and he also serves on the International Panel on the Regulation of Autonomous Weapons and the Expert Commission on the Responsible Use of Technologies in the European Future Combat Air System. We couldn't have anyone better qualified to talk about this issue with us than Frank Sauer. Let's get into the interview. Well, Frank, welcome to AI and You, and it's a pleasure to have someone of your background here on the show because there are a number of things about the autonomous weapon debate that I think people start thinking about and rapidly run into some fundamental questions that often don't get explored. And I'd like to unpack those here fairly carefully. And I think one of the points of confusion is that when we're talking about weapon systems, that we have a, a visceral reaction against weapon systems in general. We don't want to kill people. And so I think we could just stipulate right now that we would rather not kill people, even competence. But that, let's say that that ship has sailed for now and that we're talking about wars as an inevitability and that there will be weapons used in those conflicts to kill people. And so now let's start from Autonomous Weapons 101. What is the basic argument, if you're making a basic argument against autonomous weapons, and maybe we should back up and just say, should we proscribe certain levels of autonomy and how would you characterize that? Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. I think the first key issue really to raise in this regard is that autonomy is a functionality, it's a function that changes the human-machine relationship on the battlefield. We're, so we're not talking autonomous weapon systems as a distinct category that we would be able to delineate clearly from the non-autonomous weapons over there, you know, and then we could say, well, over here, these are the autonomous ones, and maybe we need some extra regulation on them, maybe cap their numbers or prohibit them entirely or stuff like that. I've spent so much time on this. <laughs> and it took so many people, me included, so long to get to a clear conceptualization of what it is that we're talking about, that it's always very important to me to raise this up front and say what we're really talking about 
is a functionality. It is the selection and engagement of targets in the kill chain that the military runs through whenever it tries to defeat a target. And the selection and engagement of targets without human intervention, that's what we're talking about when we're talking autonomy in weapon systems. So I usually also say AWS, that acronym, I say that is autonomy in weapon systems rather than autonomous weapon systems. And so the thing that we need to be doing is look at the human-machine relationship here and ask who or what human or machine is doing what when. So when is it okay to delegate some functions to the machine? Like we do this all the time. We do it in the earlier sections of the kill chain when we're doing the finding, fixing, tracking of targets by, for instance, sending out an unmanned aerial vehicle and tell it to fly to a couple of GPS waypoints. That's part of the kill chain and the machine is doing it by itself and we've delegated this function. We're no longer remotely piloting that system and we're totally fine with that because there's no ethical, legal or security implication there that would give us a headache. Whereas if that system arrives at a target or at a destination and then looks for targets, finds those targets, selects and engages them, then that's where the interesting you know, questions arise. And then that's where we need to be discussing the ethical implications of what it means to delegate this power from humans to machines and the legal implications that come along with that and also the security implications with regard to the overall increase of tempo on the battlefield. So what is it that propels you to raise that question? What outcome is it that you're trying to avoid? Is it an escalation of some kind or a destabilization or a risk? Is there something that you're trying to avoid that is prompting you to raise those questions? It depends who you're asking. So for instance, ask military commanders or operators of weapon systems, their goal will be, for instance, to avoid blue-on-blue engagements. So they want AI-enabled weapon systems that function in a way that they can foresee in terms of what will happen if I activate that system. They will want to have weapon systems that they can administer if required. And they will, if it's a proper military, like a NATO military, they will have to have some sort of system in place, rules and regulations, so that we have some accountability in a legal sense also. So if something goes wrong with that specific system, when it's in an autonomous mode, who the operator, in most cases, I'd suggest, who is responsible. Mm. So that's how they will be looking at this. They want to have trust in the system. They want to use it in a responsible manner. Now, an international lawyer might look at this and say, hmm, maybe we have some sort of accountability gap here. The whole body of international humanitarian law, which puts certain obligations on people with regard to how warfighting is conducted, the international lawyers will say this whole body of law is directed at people. Humans are supposed to be making these judgments. So can we delegate certain critical functions, the critical functions of target selection engagement to humans? Question mark. That's things that they will be talking about. You know, maybe humanitarian activists will say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Even if this were legal and we would find a way to do this in a responsible manner, Maybe there's something fundamentally wrong with delegating the decision to kill the humans on the battlefield, even if they're combatants and can, you know, lawfully be killed. Maybe there's something fundamentally wrong with this delegation to a machine because we're dehumanizing the people that get killed. Okay, we're reducing them to some data point that some machinery is just, you know, basically chewing its way through. Whereas, you know, the humans who would formerly have 
it's just some sort of oversight over that kind of process are just, you know, out for coffee and donuts. And maybe there's something fundamentally wrong with that, they might say. I am familiar with all these arguments. The argument that I mostly come down to, you already alluded to it, is this question of might we be losing control? So if the kill chain is running at machine speed, which is way, way faster than any unmanned system would operate that is remotely piloted because of the just the latency of the remote connection. And so when all these systems are fighting each other at machine speed, who is still in a position to be able to say, I can foresee what will happen in the next five to 10 minutes. And how can we avoid escalation or even some sort of algorithmically triggered initiation of conflict? Because some sensor malfunctioned and some system is under the impression, oh, I'm being fired at and will initiate conflict. And that's something that me as an arms control person and an international security person, that's something that gives me pause to think. And that's also something that I think that most people can agree on. So if you go to the UN and you talk to the Russians, the Chinese, the US, the British, the French, and so on and so forth, the Japanese, the South Koreans, the Israelis, the Germans, and so on and so forth, you will get very different answers with regard to international law. You will get very different, you know, notions regarding the ethics involved. You know, I'm German. I will have a specific notion about human dignity that is, for instance, not shared by my colleague from the UK. Because He's a purely utilitarian thinker with regard to these kinds of things, whereas I've got some Immanuel Kant and some deontology, you know, in my head. And so we're thinking about this differently. This notion of we're losing control, we're running into some kind of flesh war that everybody can agree on. That gives the creeps, everybody in Beijing, in Moscow, in Brussels, in Washington, the same way. And so that's probably, in my mind, also the biggest, strongest lever that we can pull on to get people to agree, hey, we need some guardrails with regard to how we use this. Otherwise, we can get into all kinds of hot water. Right. And I think it's that hot water that I want to delineate and to make real here because I'm trying to make these arguments concrete so we can understand how they proceed. It's easy to see how destabilization could be a factor. It's easy to see how AI could be a factor that gets us into global nuclear war. For instance, we've had Skynet and real examples of alerts that were false alarms that nearly got us into that situation. But you're talking about something different with the conventional warfare here at the moment. And is the essential argument that these systems could increase the amount of collateral damage than number of innocent people killed? Or is it something else? I want to know, like, what peg do I hang my hat on here? Right. So we can circle back to the whole nuclear Armageddon we will. Uh, if we want to later on, because that's definitely also a question that is tangentially involved here. But yeah, let's see basically where the benefits and the risks are with regard to using this in a conventional setting. And it is extremely important to be precise and to differentiate here. For instance, let's look at this issue of, you know, innocent persons, civilians getting unduly harmed. That is usually conflated with precision. So precision is a capability of a weapon system, whereas the use of this weapon system in a discriminate and proportionate manner, the way that IHL prescribes warfighting, is the question of how do I apply this weapon? 
So I can use a very precise weapon to kill all the wrong people and so commit war crimes left, right and center. So let's not conflate precision and IHL compliance. Those are two different things. But increase in precision in weapon systems can make warfighting more IHL compliant. The question is, are we using it in a manner that is conducive to that outcome? And I think the discussion is kind of has kind of changed over the last decade or so. The notion that you've been putting forward this notion of, well, innocent people or civilians will get harmed by these weapons. That was, of course, a very powerful argument, especially in the beginning, which also has something to do with the fact that the main players who were advancing this on the United Nations arms control agenda were humanitarian disarmament organizations like, for instance, Human Rights Watch or Amnesty International and the ICRC, the International Committee of the Red Cross. And it's basically their task to raise these issues and to point to things that might cause suffering for civilians. And I'd say 10 years ago, those systems were just incapable of being used in an IHL compliant manner. And I would say today, we're still not there. If you look, for instance, what Kalashnikov has built, they have, you can look that up on YouTube, they have a turret with a 7.62 millimeter or something equivalent to that, like a machine gun equivalent coupled with a electro-optical sensor and a very simple object recognition system. And it will just look at the battlefield and scan the battlefield. And, and wherever it finds a silhouette of human, it will just fire. And that's obviously not IHL compliant because the way you would have to do it is to look at who is this? Is this a combatant? Can I be using lethal force against this person? Or is he maybe trying to surrender? Or maybe is he or she auto combat? So is he wounded? And then actually I would have to aid this person. And the machines that we have right now still, I think, are not there yet and would quite easily be fooled by exploiting the way that object recognition works or computer vision works. I've been in these discussions with people where I would raise these kinds of issues and they would say, well, then we will train that machine on, you know, not firing whenever you wave a white flag to make it IHL compliant. So it's not firing at enemy combatants trying to surrender. Well, then I can invade your country with an army waving white flags because all your machines won't fire. And so it's really important to see, like, what is the technology actually capable of doing? And we've come a very long way. And I'm not one of those people who say, well, the machines will never be able to satisfy specific, you know, rules. But I think we're not there yet. And that also gives us time with regard to developing good ways of responsibly using these systems so that they can bring certain benefits to the battlefield. For instance, being more precise with the way that lethal force is applied, but not do additional harm to civilians in conflict. I think there are probably rules in war that you can't wave a white flag at the same time that you're opening fire. And You wouldn't be firing. You would just walk past my army of killer robots. Hmm. It wouldn't even be necessary because they would just be standing there not firing. That would be, I mean, it's, well, it's obvious but, but, experiment. But a white flag could confuse a human army as well in the same way that you could wear a Red Cross or a press credentials and you shouldn't do that if you're a combatant. 
Well, no. In a single instance, maybe. But look at what our brain is very, very good at. We've evolved to be extremely good in snap decisions about the meaning of specific settings and social situations. Mm. Now, why is this woman running out of the house? I can probably take a glance at it and tell you what is happening. Computer vision systems are still quite bad at that. This getting what is happening between people involved in a specific setting. And sometimes, you know, it depends on the situation. That's maybe we can talk about regulation and the way I think, you know, these systems can be used in a responsible manner. And then my main argument will be that everything is very dependent on context. And hmm. now we're talking basically infantry combat, maybe in an urban environment. Maybe it's like six or seven people in a squad and they're looking at what other people are doing. That is clearly not the only... Right. You know, setting that autonomy and weapon systems would play a role. We can imagine all kinds of other things, but that's what I'm trying to get at. I get it. But is it dangerous to advance this argument when you can look at humans getting caught up in fog of war and making famously and documented bad decisions where, for instance, a, a group of people all agree that a threat on a screen or something that's denoted on a screen is a threat and then afterwards they find it wasn't and they go back and they look at the review the tapes and go why did we ever think that that was a tank or whatever it clearly isn't and there have been violations of human rights in places like vietnam by groups of soldiers going in and having some collective group think hysteria whatever the psychological term is and committing atrocities that reveal that we have a psychology that is imperfect. So if we're comparing humans and machines in this respect, the machines are catching up with us. And so that argument may not last much longer. Exactly. I mean, that's more or less what I'm driving at. And that's, again, where I would say it's really important to differentiate. So let's start with the whole notion of humans do terrible things to each other in war. And how can machines somehow come into play? And one of the, I would say, stupider arguments, you know, raised, especially in the beginning was, well, humans do terrible things to each other in war. Machines don't, for instance, rape people in war. And, you know, my reply always was, well, only until we deploy the RaidBot 3000 and just let it go. So I wouldn't say that makes a lot of sense. I can, of course, use machines to do terrible things to humans. So... What is the right way to look at it? I would say we need to find a way to have the machines do what they're good at and to find out what the humans are good at doing and have them still, in some sense, be doing that. And so it is true, of course, that mistakes are made and you know collateral damage exists. And so I think the best way to look at this is how can we be using machines to reduce collateral damage, which I think is one of the more substantial arguments that have also been raised in the UN framework with regard to let's wait a second before we enter into any sort of, you know, regulation. We're not sure yet with regard to what the technology will bring as soon as it starts maturing and what we maybe can do with it in terms of being more IHL compliant. I was saying this, we might end up Hopefully, I hope we end up in a situation where we find ways to reduce suffering, to reduce collateral damage, to reduce mistakes. But mm. like I said, I think we need to use machines for the tasks that they're good at. And we need to still have a human involved in this, not necessarily in the loop, but 
we have to have something which is called, it's a very quick silvery term, called uh, meaningful human control. And I can go into what that means later, but we have to come to a good interplay between what is the machine doing and what is the human doing. And that interplay will change depending mm. on context. And just one more thing about humans making mistakes. Humans make mistakes, but the good thing about humans is in that regard that we're slow and we're not all alike. Mm. And the problem with machines is that they're also making mistakes sometimes and they're making mistakes at lightning speed. And if they're all the same, they're all making the same mistake at lightning speed, which is also problematic, but different. And so it's just important to look at this in a differentiated manner and in a cool manner and not always be looking for some panacea with regard to who, if we only use machines, then war fighting will be more humane and there will be less suffering in war. We've tried that. We've tried it with TNT. We've tried it with the fast firing gun. Drones for a while were supposed to be that silver bullet and it never is. It's the beef is between humans and we will find ways to kill each other. And the best that we can hope for is to put in, you know, some guardrails so it doesn't get too much out of hand. And you talked about the dehumanizing aspects of this. I wonder whether there could be a, a shifting of the Overton window here in seeing competence on a, a battlefield as dots on a screen instead of someone whose face you're looking at. And so it's much easier to just push the button and say, let's erase that dot than it is to shoot someone in the face. Sort of like Ender's Game, to mm. use science fiction reference. My favorite book, by the way. <laughs> and, and that was one where the situation, to give a spoiler alert, was that someone was fooled into conducting warfare on grand scale by believing that it was a game instead of reality. We perhaps risk that. How would we know if that was happening? It's really hard to say. I mean, again, um, I think there isn't a lot of chivalry face-to-face -face combat going on in modern warfare most of the time. Now, with regard to the Russian aggression in Ukraine, I think we are all kind of surprised with regard to the heavy elements of that still taking place. There are, in some instances, like close combat situations in those trenches that, you know, I think most people who look at modern warfighting would not have predicted to take place in the 21st century this way. And so we are mostly thinking about standoff weaponry, about missiles, cruise missiles, and all kinds of other things that usually are not looking the other person in the eye and then, you know, taking their life <laughs> the way it was maybe a thousand years ago. And so I think it's also important to stay realistic here and not paint too heroic or romantic a picture of what warfare, you know, is supposed to be. It's a nasty business. And if you can kill people from 40 kilometers away, being safe yourself, that is what will happen. That's what artillery is for and what other weapons that work at a distance are for. Still, I would say, are we still concerning ourselves with the killing and dying that takes place? And your question is, when do we know that we have kind of maybe crossed a certain threshold? To be perfectly honest, I would have to think about that exact question a bit more. I don't have a ready answer for you here. But I see the danger of a slippery slope, for sure. 
And that's why I always circle back to this notion of who's selecting and engaging the targets. If there's still people involved, if only for the reason that someone needs to be legally accountable in the end, who together with a machine do the target selection and basically have situation and awareness, know what the target is, know what it means to engage this target with a specific type of weapon, for instance, then I'd say we're probably still within the confines of what is acceptable in ethical and legal terms. But if, you know, that same person was to just flip the switch in the morning and then go for coffee and, you know, do some other paperwork and a couple of emails and then now around noon, maybe look at the printout of what the machine is saying. And it says, well, I killed like 30 people over there and then I blew up three tanks here. Then I'd say maybe we're a bit too distant from what is happening. And drone warfare, remotely piloted vehicle drones, I mean, in a way has given us a glimpse of what it means when we as democratic societies are decoupling completely from war fighting and from basically producing a body count at the other end of the globe. You can completely entangle yourself in this sort of war fighting without ever getting a real feedback loop on what is the cost of what we're doing. So you basically you never know, well, when is it time to stop, maybe? So these are basically the question, I guess, that you would, you know, concern yourself to come to a good answer to your question, which I don't readily have, unfortunately. Would it be incumbent on us to avoid developing warfare situations which develop so quickly that they happen faster than human reaction time then? Because at some point, the ability of the human to make a rational, ethical decision is negated by the situation happening too fast. If we developed warfare situations where we required judgments in split second that we might need much longer for, do we then get into the situation where we've lost control? We might, if we're not careful. And that's why I'd say the answer really is, to your question, it depends. We already have, that's another thing that is, I think, very important for people to wrap their head around. We already have autonomy and weapon systems, and we've had that for 30, 40 years. Terminal defense weapon systems like the Seawees on Navy ships or uh, the Patriot missile defense system that is working, you know, in Ukraine as we speak, those systems you can put into an autonomous or automatic, whatever you want to call it, it's not really relevant mode, and they will select and engage targets without human intervention. And they will give you this printout that I was talking about before and basically say, engage this target and these coordinates at that point in time. And that's a good thing because these kinds of, you know, defensive weapons that basically defend against incoming munitions and fire at materiel will be required even more in the future because it turns out all these missiles and cruise missiles get faster and faster. We're now talking right. hypervelocity cruise missiles that go faster than Mach 5 or anti-ship missiles. You simply don't have the time as a human from detecting that incoming threat to defending it to be in a position to making any kinds of judgment. And so these systems we've had for 30, 40 years, we will keep them and they're a good thing. When we're talking, like I was saying before, why is the woman running out of the house? What is she carrying? Who's in that house? What's happening over there? When we're talking like these kinds of situations, like really, really cluttered environments where there, you do need these human understanding, split-second decisions. We do train operators for exactly that, like 
breach a room, go in there, fire at the bad guys. That's what we're training people for. And they they can be fairly good at it. So in these kinds of situations, I would be extremely hesitant to be delegating the selection engagement of targets to machines. That's also why, for instance, specific systems that are now being developed for these kinds of scenarios, for instance, in Israel, I'm not naming specific systems, but there, let's just say there's like quadcopter size, small drones buzzing around through a building, mapping the building, and also looking for people. Those things are not at least judging from the ad, the campaigns that the manufacturer is running, those people are not functioning in a way that they just look for people and then engage targets. They will always be radioing back to an operator. The humans will be looking at some kind of monitor and will basically say, yes, that is in fact a valid target, select that target, and then the system will engage. And there's good reason for why that is the case. So again, it all depends on context. Hmm. And sometimes you just need that speed. I'd be especially inclined to say when you're defending against stuff that cannot, you know, realistically be anything else than an incoming missile or artillery shell or something like that, then it's always like good to go and just, you know, flip on the autonomous mode and let the system do its thing. Hmm. But if you're looking for different sorts of targets in different environments, in cluttered environments, then I would be way more hesitant uh, to be delegating autonomy to machines. Right. I'm not trying to make the argument necessarily for delegating autonomy to machines. I'm trying to find the boundaries here. And and as you said, it's very context dependent. If you're a carrier group, then anything traveling in your vicinity greater than Mach 1 is not civilian. Exactly. But there was also the USS Vincennes, whose autonomous system identified and shot down the wrong target. Yeah. But perhaps that's the exception that proves the rule. That's the end of the first half of the interview. To save those of you on the younger side who might have to otherwise look up what the USS Vincennes incident was, the guided missile carrier of that name was on patrol in the Persian Gulf in 1988 when tensions with Iran were high and misidentified an Iran Air Airbus A300 that was climbing on a scheduled flight plan and path as an F-14 descending to attack them and shot it down in Iranian airspace. It took a long time for the true facts about the incident to emerge. You might want to look it up, there's a lot to it. One thing I discovered was that in the year 2000, the USS government said in a written response to a BBC question that, quote, they believed the incident may have been caused by a simultaneous psychological condition amongst the 18 bridge crew of Vincennes, called scenario fulfillment, which is said to occur when persons are under pressure. In such a situation, the men will carry out a training scenario, believing it to be reality, while ignoring sensory information that contradicts the scenario. In the case of this incident, the scenario was an attack by a lone military aircraft. End quote. Another commander nearby thought at the time that the target couldn't possibly have been hostile. So you could argue that this incident was one where an AI would not have made that mistake had it been in charge of the defense because it wouldn't have a psychology to be subject to scenario fulfillment. Lots to think about. In today's news ripped from the headlines about AI, Virginia Tech and Microsoft have introduced Algorithm of Thoughts, an improved method for getting better answers out of large language models. The previous approach was something called chain of thought, which amounted to breaking a problem down into steps and guiding the LLM through them. 
algorithm of thoughts uses context and evaluation steps to adjust the process more dynamically, making it more streamlined. If you read up about this, there are buzzwords by the truckload, paradigm shift, game changer, and so on, and little detail about how it actually works or will be used, but there is a general belief that this approach is very promising indeed. Despite the fact that the research paper tested it out by using the so-called game of 24, where you're given a list of numbers and have to put arithmetical operators between them so that the resulting expression evaluates to 24. So if the list of numbers was 14, 8, 8, and 2, then one answer is 14 minus 8, all times 8 divided by 2 is 24. It seems like a small hook to hang this hat on, but the algorithm's explanation of how it found the answer is the best yet. Another problem they gave it was a simplified crossword puzzle. It's early days, but this one is worth tracking. Here's one of my occasional and infrequent reminders to bump our social media scores. We've got a great audience, thank you, growing all the time, and the more we get, the more we can do. And the way people will find out about the show is if you like it. Push the like button, I know you already like it, that's why you're here. Give it a five-star rating and say nice things about it in social media and your podcasting platform. Because, as you know by now, it's the AI algorithms that will decide whether to bring the show to the attention of anyone looking for podcasts. And virtually their entire decision is based on the data I just mentioned. Next week, we will conclude the interview with Frank Sauer when we'll talk about psychology of combat decisions, AI and strategic defense, and nuclear conflict destabilization. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember... No matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Artificial Intelligence and You and see more videos and articles at AIandYou.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.